You are listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Koronai, the magical country. This story was written and performed by Sam Chupp. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com. Now please enjoy Heart of the Hunter, Chapter 8. Aaron took up a meditative position on the floor of the gypsy wagon. His father watched as he took the family heirloom scrying bowl in his hands, careful not to spill any of the pure spring water that had been poured within. Specially collected only under a full moon near the time of the turning of the seasons, it would not do to spill it. Aaron's mind was racing, and he clearly had trouble focusing his inner sight as his father watched him. The bowl itself was an unrelieved black enamel with a silver rim, designed not to distract his everyday sight, but to calm it and focus it until it slowly slid away from his notice. He found himself suddenly wishing to flee the wagon, doubts and worries filling him, that he himself was a sham, that he could not scry as his father did that there would be no magic that came, that all this time he had somehow been deceiving himself that he had this power. He felt nothing. His heart raced. His mind sought to be anywhere but here. His father spoke. Breathe, my son. It will come, was all he said. The momentary interruption actually turned his attention for a moment outward in minor annoyance. It was at that point that the sight, fickle and unpredictable as it was, chose to visit him. He drew a breath inward, and the world changed around him. The one or two times he had scried before He had been called to look at vistas that were many, many leagues distant. Scenes that the Valisti had long held historic and significant. The Isle of the Three Smokes. The Plain of Garas' Defeat. The Throne of Jaras, which was not a throne itself, but a tower built on a lonely peak somewhere. All of these scryings were done by all of the people who had the talent and learned the skill, and thus they were proven. Only those who had seen those places could describe them accurately enough to satisfy the elders that their talent was true. But in the previous castings with the sight, his inner vision emerged from a veil of mists, as if wherever he was coming from was covered over with fog. Now, however, it was different. His sight took wing. His inner perspective rose up through the roof of the wagon. It flew up over the trees. It skirled through the upper canopy of the river forest 
and flung itself southward. In the waning light of the day, Arn could see the shadows lengthening. He knew that what he saw in this vision was happening in this time, in the now. His inner will, that which the people called the Sashti, was already guiding him toward the one the people had named the Talini Tana, the rabid dog. And then, like a bird coming to light on a branch, his sight glided into view the scene of Mad Jack and his crew. He knew immediately that his sight had found them true because he saw the men with the wild eyes and the unkempt, shredded clothing. They moved like wild animals and not like men. They carried sharp and heavy improvised weapons decorated with the blood of their victims. They wore the pelts of mortal kind and decorated their bodies with the bones of their prey. A corpse charred beyond recognition, lay at the edge of the camp, still smoking. Aaron couldn't even begin to understand the circumstances surrounding that. They were laughing, drinking, and fighting, even when they should be doing otherwise. They were unruly and nearly unmanageable, and it was a wonder they stayed together at all. But somehow Jack's insanity had knitted them together in a kind of war band of madness. His sashti followed the outer edges of the band, and he strove to count their number. At least forty men, all of them armed and clearly deadly. Slowly his sashti moved until his inner vision was above the hovel of the leader himself. He could see the mad dog, nearly passed out drunk, with a bottle of grain spirits next to him. He laid on the ground, with his back on a rotting bag of pilfered oats. His men clustered around him, drinking and laughing, and toying with something on a leash. Following the lead, he saw the girl. The flash of her auburn hair in the coming shadows was what first drew his attention, but his sight rotated slowly to show her the merchant's daughter. The Yarian girl they had left behind because she refused their help. Chandra. Her name was Chandra. She had been manacled to a chain, the chain attached to a spike, driven deep into the ground. The chain was just long enough for her to be afforded the opportunity to get up and move around the spike in a circle, but not long enough to let her get at her captors. Suddenly, his sight blurred, and he began to lose the thread of the connection. Raise your sashti, son. Raise it. There's something. With his teeth gritted, Arin strove to comply with his father's request. With a few strained breaths, his sight cleared as the point of view gained height yet again. An ashwood ring, my son. Proof against magic. Very valuable. Very dangerous. I have felt it before in the cities. I know not where it may be in the camp, but this must be accounted for. Yes, father, he said quietly, trying hard 
not to lose the scene altogether. That's it. We cannot risk losing contact. I will touch you, son, and I will craft a vase stone. Be still. Keep the connection alive. His father touched his forehead, and suddenly the quality of his inner vision changed as his father's sight overlaid his. The surge of energy through him was almost enough to make him lose the scene altogether. But he quickly recovered. You remember what a vast stone is, Arinan? A charm stone, father. It will let us know where he is. For a moment, he felt as if he were balancing on a single log bridge over a rushing river. And then all was steady again. He could feel silvery strands of energy sliding to the side of his inner vision, tendrils of spirit that reached out and enmeshed themselves with an old oak tree placed in the center of the camp. There, that's it. I have set the stone. You may release the sight now, Arinin. He paused for a moment, his inner eyes staring at the young woman chained up in the camp of the Mad Ones. She was curled over on her side, her hair dirty and ragged. Blood stained her shift. Whether or not she had been raped, he didn't know. Even at this distance, outside of the influence of the Ashwood Ring, he could tell that her spirit was as yet unbroken. So she had some hope left. There was some kind of fierce fire at the center of her soul. A beautiful thing, even as it lay banked and hidden underneath. He could not take his eyes away from the light for a few breaths. And something in his own heart suddenly stung as he felt her terror and her self-loathing come across the connection with his sashti. Such a bright soul to be so ill-treated and violated. His hands curled into fists. His father felt his son's anger through their connection. Yes, I know, my son. The rabid dog has struck again. That poor Gahalina. She is most assuredly to be killed. But... You must have done now, or we may be sensed. They may have sorcerers among their number. A shaman, perhaps. Reluctantly, Arin released the scene, the sight of the bandit camp vanishing in his mind's eye like steam from a stew pot boiling. Arin looked up into his father's eyes. He picked up a Fortuna card on the table, painted with the sign of the twelve horsemen riding across the moon. Vela's ride, the ride of vengeance. No, father, not this one, not this time. He opened his other hand in supplication. Please, father. You're not going to put yourself in danger to save a Gahe, are you, Arinin? This is not how the Black Bear tribe grows. Father, I ask it of you. The stone, please. This man must be stopped. I have soldiers with me. 
We will go and deal with him. You cannot command those who do not call you leader. I will ask then, but I cannot. What the mad dog does to this woman, it is what happened to Jan, father. If this man is not stopped, he will continue to do this. He will continue to hunt the others, capture them, humiliate them, and kill them until he is put down. The tribe does not rest in safety until he is dead. Varda took the card from his son and nodded at it, as if seeing it for the first time. He let out a long, slow breath of acceptance, his eyes filled with both fear and pride for his son. Like Vela, you may take eleven others with you, but only eleven. I read that the Faitana have spoken. Choose wisely, Arinan, the leader his father said, and placed the vast stone into Arinan's hand. It was a simple river rock, but just the act of holding it gave Arin a mystic tug that pointed unerringly in one direction. Thank you, father, Arin said, trying to clear his head. Images of the camp and of his memories of the scenes he witnessed before at the inn would not leave his mind's eye. We will leave very soon. As you wish, Arn Singer, his father said. Arn rose then and suddenly embraced his father with a fierce will, as if clinging to the last tree standing on the edge of the cliff as he fell. Breathing deeply, his voice unsteady, Varda placed his hand on his son's forehead and traced a blessing there. Farewell, my son. May the blood of the Valisti serve you well. May the long road always bring you home. Thank you, father. Now go, my son, and return to me soon. I will, father. See that you do. Arin emerged from the wagon to find nearly all of his tribe waiting and watching. Sensing the mystical energies created by Arn and Varda's work, they had, one by one, paused their duties and stood near the wagon, quietly waiting to be told what was afoot. Arn smiled as he went directly to Garen Hunter. My old friend, I go upon Vela's ride, the ride of the Twelve. I need you to help guide the way. I will go with you, my friend. And who melts? Garin asked. Who else will go? Arn asked, and was soon surrounded with young hunters and scouts, warriors all. Very rarely was there such an opportunity to win honor and prestige in the eyes of the tribe. Arn went among the Black Bear tribe and chose them, one by one, until he at last said, That will be the last for the moment. Garen counted. You have only nine there, Arnsinger. Can you not take more? I want to offer two of my comrades the opportunity to join us. Get the horses collected. I will speak to the Gahe. Begin the right. Get mounted up and await my return. 
We hear you are in singer. We will make all ready, Garin said, as he watched Arin move through the wagons towards his caravan's camp. As he walked, a figure stepped out of the shade of the tree and caught his eye with a single flash of red silk. Nonchalantly, he took a step or two off the path and doubled back around a nearly impenetrable stand of trees. There, on the other side, the figure stood in shade, her face covered with a veil, her eyes flashing green beneath luxuriant midnight dark curls. There are words that you travel on the long ride, came the voice of the woman in the shadow, who must be Corinne. The redolent scent of honeysuckle danced along the breeze from where she stood. But her eyes made out her, but his eyes made out her ample, curvaceous form, the turn of her leg, and nothing else. She was playing close to the edge of what the women's circle would accept, placing herself in so close proximity to him without a chaperone. But by not identifying herself or speaking his name, things remained in the realm of the deniable, just barely. Arin nodded, eyes gazing off to the middle distance. There are those who know the past very well. Some of us have lost brothers to the threat. The threat must be dealt with. And yet, when one's brother is already lost, is it then time to lose one's love? Corinne said. There is more at stake than just one person. There is a need. The Faitana have decreed, Arin began, but she interrupted him. The Velisti are not marionettes to dance to the gods' tunes. We are the fiddlers, not the throng. There is need. A woman lies, still living in their thrall, Arin said. Corinne's voice grew curious. A Wunjo woman? A Gahelina. But the Talinitana must not claim another, not one other. So the singer would risk his life and the lives of his brothers to save a Gahalina? To stop the mad dog, to save the Gahalina, to avenge the brother of my Volana Vizi, my heart, the heart of my sweetest love. Not in his name do you do this, but for your own pride. He lies sleeping. His shade does not demand anything. You go on your own. Do not do this. Do not send this Wunjo man into battle without your blessing. Do not withdraw your favor. I beg you. I... I... I don't want to see you dead. So I... I do not withdraw my favor. But I will curse your shade, Amizi, if you do not come back to me. Do not be a foolish hero. Be a man, not a fool. Promise me. Nantuis, Vereda, Vineda. On the soul of my soul, yes. I so swear, Volana. I will return to you.
Arin put his hands on his hips. You said I was on leave, did you not, Sergeant? To see your family, yes, but not to go gallivanting off on some gypsy vendetta. I promise that I will be here upon the morrow, Sergeant. The, the ride of Vela is very swift. I want to go with him, Raven spoke up. She turned to Arin. You need me. Take me with you. Arin met her eyes for a moment and searched them, wondering about her motives, but realizing how valuable she would be in the fight. He nodded, and his acceptance was all she needed to smile. Now just a second, Raven. You too? Does this have anything to do with that message you got from the Factor's letterbox? Not at all, Sergeant. Besides, that's none of your business, sir. Alabar interrupted. In truth, Sergeant, I should be along as well. The girl Oren mentioned is likely injured. I might point out that we have wagons to guard. What will happen to them? Well, we can't all go, of course. You will have Dav and Gar. And I can promise that my people will come to your aid, should anything untoward happen. And will they provide me with a soldier if you get yourself killed? Peter asked skeptically. Aaron nodded, as if this was something he'd already considered. Absolutely. Any of the able-bodied would replace me. Peter shrugged and looked at Raven, and Aaron, and Alabar. He thought about the woman they'd met about what he'd heard about Mad Jack, about the fact that she could easily be his sister back home in the Yartowns, that she was a Yarian like him. Her father had already been killed by the nail. What did she have left? Very well, Arn. You, and Raven, and Alabar, may go. We won't be moving until the morning. If you're not back by then... I'll have to list you all as AWOL, and that will severely curtail the profit you'll be seeing from this trip. I'll deal with the factor. Don't worry. Just go and bring our young lady back alive. The way I see it, we owe it to her dad to get her back to civilization. Thank you, Sergeant. I'll bring us all back. Thank you. See that you do. Now get out of here before the factor wakes up from his afternoon nap. Yes, sir. Let's go, swordmates. Not long after the Twelve, the host of Vela were assembled. In addition to Arin, Raven, and Alabar, the warriors and hunters of the tribe were all mounted on some of the tribe's best horses. Wunjo horses were bred for intelligence, speed, and sure-footedness. They were decorated from birth with the ancient symbols that would link them forever with the spirit of the gypsies. The elder gypsy horse fathers were known to be ruthless in their culling of herds in order to strengthen the tribe. Vela's ride was a right of the people. It fell to Garen Hunter to consecrate it and enact it, but once it had begun, Arn Singer would guide the host. 
A torch was passed from the home fire in the center of camp, hand in hand, to him at the start of the line of the twelve riders. This is some ritual, Alabar, Raven said as she looked around at the face paint markings on all the other riders. A young woman had painted her face with black and yellow paint to make her look like her namesake. Alabar looked rather like an owl, Raven thought. The rest of the riders were fierce, sad, dispassionate, or mystical, living gypsy history. She found herself wishing to ask the names of all the characters in this living ritual drama, but would not break the mood of the magic that was being raised here. Drummers hidden in the trees all around began to drum, the sound surrounding them and filling every part of them with the heartbeat of the tribe down through time. Not just a ritual, Raven. A working. Magic is afoot. Alabar whispered, his fingers of one hand reaching into his tunic to clutch the crystalline prism that hung there. A cry went up from the gathered tribe. Garen Hunter issued a command to his mount, and all at once the other steeds took after him, moving together as if they were one flesh. And once again... The long ride of Vela had begun. As the trail was made, the horses began to work towards their fastest canter, changing the rhythm of their hooves to a different syncopation as they ran. At first it was all Raven could do to hold on and not be thrown from the saddle. Then she grew accustomed to the pace, marveled at the way her horse's hooves avoided every stray stone, every loose root as heavy flecks of foam blossomed on her flanks. Looking up, she realized that the party had ridden into a fog bank of some kind, one that had sprung up rather quickly in the early evening. The mist swirled around them as they rode, and suddenly the land was flat, the ground covered only in soft, dark moss. A long thoroughfare of trees stretched ahead of them for as far as she could see, the mists covering the forest floor all around them, the road itself as straight and narrow as a sword blade. A shiver went through Raven as she realized that, somehow, she was no longer in the world she knew. She had crossed over, on horseback, into the spirit lands her mother had told her about long, long ago. Moving swiftly through spirit paths, the long riders sped through the twilight, arrowing their way towards their prey. Get that there discretion ring, Frick. We need to talk to our Mr. Changaman. This one's well nigh used up the way I see it, Jack said, swigging a bottle of rock spirits. He prodded the chain girl with a stick, and she moved just a little in response. Oh, aye, boss. Let's see what Mr. Changaman wants with her. Then we can have our way, we can, Frick said. Let's see here. How does this thing work? Oh, yeah. You got our foots with it. Let's see here. Jack said, taking the ring, putting it on and closing his eyes. Yes? What is it? Came the voice of Tichan through the magic of the ring. We have your girl, Mr. Changaman. We want to know when you want to take delivery. Ah, excellent, Mr. Jack. I will be with you soon. 
<laughs> See that you do. It's not easy, you know, keeping the other gentlemen here from your prettiest company. I wouldn't wait too long if I were you. A triangle of light formed in the center of the camp, and before any of them half-drunk men could find their weapons, the triangle became many triangles ranging upward in the air, holding back a eerie, brilliant blue-white glow. A second later, Tichan stood in the middle of the camp. Is this fast enough, Mr. Jack? Oh, I, I believe it is. <laughs> so... We have her here, and we have her bubble thing. I believe we're due the rest of our payment, sir. Payment? Ah, oh, yes, of course. But first, let me see the girl. Yeah, right, Changaman. We got the girl. She was up along the road, just like you said. And we got our little doodad. The money first. Very well. Here is half of what is remaining. And you'll get the other half when I see her up close. And see this thing you have. I reckon that's a fair bargain. But first you don't get the girl. First you get the bubble thing. Then you pay all the rest. And then you get the girl. Got it? Of course, Mr. Jack. The bobble then. Jack pulled the bobble out of the bag around his neck. And handed it, barehanded, over to the Changaman. Tichon took a small glowing box out of his robes and held it in one hand while trying to fit the bauble in, into the indentation provided. Nothing happened. He tried again. This is not the cameo I asked for. This is... I don't know what this is. This is... This is a mercantile guild token. What is it doing here, Jack? And where did you put the cameo? He held up the glowing ward box and gestured with it. This is useless, Jack. I told you to get me the girl and the object, but you got me neither. That girl you have is not even the girl. Look at her hair. It's supposed to be black, you numbwit. Black like a raven. With that, a single arrow flew out of the darkness of the forest and pierced T-Chan's forearm. Crying out in pain, the man dropped the ward box. Turning to Master Jack, T-Chan said, you and your men will be punished in the eternal hell of swords, false betrayer. The witches of the Quadong will hunt you wherever you go for your treachery. I didn't do that. None of my men do, you stupid Changi. Look over there. They got themselves their own force. They're all around us. Run, you bastards! Run! You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter. A Coronai Chronicles story on the Bears Grove Bardic Circle podcast. The Bears Grove Bardic Circle is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. Fireheart Foundry also produces the Bears Grove, Dragon Ken, the podcast for kids and gaming, the Square One podcast, and Vibrant Living. Find out more about Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives No Commercial Use License 2.5 Music today was provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com
The songs were Green Druid by Dignity, Crossroads, and Thangorn the Forest by Lidner. Links to these songs and their creators will be provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Heart of the Hunter, and hope you come back to our fire very soon.